The scripture reading this morning uh, comes from Matthew uh, chapter 5, verses 1, 2, and 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Fred. I'm part of the team here. And uh, if you're a visitor with us, welcome. Welcome. We're very thankful that you've joined us today. Um, It is definitely with mixed emotions that uh, Tanner has let us know about. uh, I I don't know who's going to fill your shoes. Um, Tanner has done just an amazing job leading us every Sunday And so please take a moment to just give him a big hug and say thank you. Um, The the day I met Tanner, I I just thought, this is a truly humble man. And uh, that's really rare (laughs) when it comes to worship leaders. And and so um, I'm just so thankful for you, brother. I want to just say that publicly. Uh, You've you've encouraged my heart so many times. So bless you. before we jump into this, this amazing beatitude, uh, can I please invite you to lean in hard with me this morning and pray? Father, um, I'm mindful that even this morning, you're teaching me to apply this message. <laughs> um, you, never, you never make us comfortable when you're teaching us. And I'm acutely aware of that right now. And so I pray that in my discomfort, uh, you, would, you would give grace. You would visit your people with a word for their hearts, a living and active word that would bring conviction, that would bring perhaps repentance, but would most of all bring um, a glorious welcome from our Savior King that this is the work you want to do. This is the work you're doing. This is the work you're calling us into. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be a a humble people that meekly receive the implanted word this morning. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and that's still... Where we are, this is our third message, I think. Um, We're still in the beginning. We're we're looking at these statements that Jesus makes at the beginning of his sermon called the Beatitudes or the Blessings. And um, what Jesus is doing here at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, he's sort of describing the characteristics of the people that are citizens of God's kingdom. You remember, we've, we've talked about how he came preaching the kingdom of God and demonstrating its power, that it was here now in him. Um, and, and so he is telling us about what, what the people who are part of this kingdom look like. What are their characteristics? He's painting a verbal picture for us, if you will, of all those people who embrace his message of the kingdom and submit to his reign in their lives. This is all just another way of saying he's, he's describing the characteristics of a Christian. 
And so we've seen in verses 3 and 4 of the past two weeks, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And then in verse 5, where we were at this morning, he says this, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, as we reflect on these, just these three opening statements that Jesus makes in these Beatitudes, I, I, I expect you have the same reaction that I do. This is not uh, what we expect to hear. These are very unusual. You might even say they're, they're, they're very paradoxical. You see, these statements that Jesus is making here seem completely at odds with with what any regular person would think it means to be blessed, right? I mean, the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, in in what world could people like that be called blessed? It doesn't make sense to us, does it? Or does it? You see think it begins to make sense for us when we understand that the, that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that Jesus is preaching about, the, Jesus, the, the kingdom that Jesus is demonstrating is present with him. See, the kingdom of heaven completely overturns the status quo of this world. If you understand that, that that as the kingdom of heaven breaks in, it it completely overturns the status quo of this world. And if you understand that about the kingdom, you can begin to understand the Beatitudes, these statements. In fact, that idea of overturning the world is exactly what happened um, in the early church when Paul and Silas went to Thessalonica. They were preaching the kingdom of God. And a bunch of people didn't like their message. And this huge mob, this big crowd got very upset. And they went to the authorities in Thessalonica. And they were screaming and shouting. And here's what they were saying about Paul and Silas. These men have turned the world upside down. Now, why? Why would they say that? Well, the next verse tells us, this is in Acts 17, verse 6 and 7. The next verse tells us, it says that they were preaching that Jesus is the king. Now, if you, may, if you believe, if you make the claim that Jesus is the king, guess what? That means that Caesar isn't. See, if Jesus is the cosmic king... Well, then Caesar's claims to be Lord are, uh, shall we say, relativized severely. And they saw that and they, as a result, said that these guys with their message were turning the world upside down. You see, that's my point. When the kingdom comes, it subverts, it overturns the status quo of this world. And it calls those who come into the kingdom 
to live a completely new way. Now, the, the, the mob in Thessalonica said that the kingdom of God was turning the world upside down, but Christians know that the kingdom of God is actually turning the world right side up. Because the kingdom of God is the message that God is restoring and will one day completely restore all things. So when we get to Matthew 5, 5, with those kinds of things in mind, Jesus doesn't say what most normal people would expect, that the powerful, the, the enterprising, the competitive, aggressive people are the ones who are going to inherit everything. That's not what Jesus says. He says, blessed are the meek, for they, and by which he means they alone. So, blessed are the meek, for they alone will inherit the earth. What a tremendous claim. What a tremendous claim. This, this I think you'll agree with me, requires some explanation. And so, I have a one-point message. I don't, it's been a long time since I preached a one-point message. My point is this. My whole point this morning is to try and help us answer this question. What does it mean to be meek? What is Jesus talking about here? What is this meekness that he is uh, describing as that is characteristic of God's people? Well, I'm glad you asked. Now, I don't know about you. I'm, I'm not a big fan of the word meek. Because whenever I hear the word meek... We, I immediately associate it with another word, which is weak. Don't you? I don't, I don't really want you. You're so meek. I, that just doesn't sit well with me. You see, when I, I hear the word meek, I think of cowardly. I think of spineless. I think of a meek person as the kind of person when you shake their hand, it's like you're grabbing a hold of a limp fish. <laughs> when, I, when I hear the word meek, I think of, of timid and mousy. So is that what Jesus is talking about here? Is he saying, blessed are the human doormats. Blessed are the spineless Blessed are the wimps and the pushovers and the weaklings. Is that what he's saying? No. Thank you, Kim. That is not what he is saying. You see, Christians are called to serve, but Christians are never called to be servile. And so what is this meekness that Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 5, verse 5? And I think we can really uh, begin to answer this pretty clearly because to anyone hearing Jesus say, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth, they would have immediately made an association. See, remember, the Jesus hearers, these were people of the Bible. Many of them, as some of you, had large portions of the Scripture. They were very familiar with it, especially the Psalms. 
And for anybody listening to Jesus that day when he said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, they would have immediately thought of Psalm 37, verse 11. Here's what Psalm 37, verse 11 says. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. You see, it would have immediately triggered that association. And in fact, referring to Psalm 37, the Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner writes this. There is no finer exposition of the third beatitude from the Sermon on the Mount than this psalm from which it is drawn. So what's going on in Psalm 37? Because that's what Jesus wants us to to connect to. He's teaching us about meekness by referencing Psalm 37. And I think Psalm 37 is worth going to and looking at a little bit. So that's what we're going to do. Because, you see, in Psalm 37, King David, the author of the psalm, is wrestling with a problem that is, I think, that is as familiar to us as it would have been familiar to those who were sitting at the feet of Jesus listening to his message. What is that problem? Well, here it is. It's the apparent success of those who ignore or completely disobey God. Right? Do you look around the world and think, what's going on? Things seem upside down. They don't seem right. Why is it that pushy, power-hungry, aggressive, asserting, controlling types of people are always the ones who seem to get ahead in this world? They seem to succeed. That is the problem that David is wrestling with in Psalm 37. Is is ruthlessness really the road to success? Is do we really get to the top by stepping on others? Is it really a dog eat dog world? That's the problem. And David in Psalm 37 and Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount are here to tell us no. That's not the way it is. That's not the way it's going to be. In fact, the meek, the exact opposite of the kinds of people that seem to succeed in this world, the meek and only the meek will inherit the earth. Contrary to all appearances, it'll be the gentle people. The, the unassuming people who win in the end. So let's take a closer look at some of these verses from Psalm 37 in order to sort of fill out our picture of the meek that Jesus is describing. In verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 37, it says, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like grass and wither like the green herb. See, here what David is is counseling us. He's saying, the meek are encouraged not to get worked up. We're, We're encouraged not to get agitated about evildoers, about wicked people. See, we see what's going on in the world. I mean, if you, if you just watch any, any news story, it's, it's, a bit, it's a bit upsetting. I don't know about you, but I have trouble 
not getting really angry sometimes. Psalm 37 says, don't do that. See, we, we see what's going on. We're grieved by what's going on. But we're not to get irate about it. We're not to get exasperated about it. Now, that should inform the way we respond to what's going on in the world on our Facebook pages. Just put that in there, a little, little application point for you. It really should. See, the word here uh, for fret is literally they don't get heated. They don't get hot under the collar. They don't get red Faced and, and it's funny that Psalm 37 counsels this three times in verse 1, in verse 7, and in verse 8. So it's an important point. How much energy do we waste, really? Just getting upset, getting angry, getting, getting really angry about what wicked people seem to be getting away with in this world. We're not called to be indifferent to what's going on. Neither should we be freaking out. Verse 2 teaches that we need to cultivate an eternal perspective on the wicked and their seeming successes. See, because verse 2 teaches that wicked people will not endure. See, in the big scheme of things, their successes, whatever they are, they're going to be short-lived. There's an expiration date on their success. Here or hereafter, they will fade and wither. It's like that, um, that cilantro that you, you leave out on your counter overnight. You don't want to put that on your, your food in the, you know, the next day, right? It's all brown and limp and ugly. You throw it out. That's what the psalmist is saying. For example, think recently of, of the, you know, Kevin Spacey. Or uh, Jeffrey Epstein. Need I say more? Then in verses 3 to 6, David writes, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Meek people are not passive people. This is very active. Trust in the Lord. Delight in the Lord. Commit your way to the Lord. Meek people are not passive people. They're active people. They're people who are continually engaging with the Lord. They're continually going to God. See, meek people are so engaged with God... They're not focused on the fact that they don't have as much as the other guy. They're not fretting over the fact that uh, somebody has mistreated them and spoken to them in a harsh way. They're not upset about how unfairly they've been treated. They're not They're not agitated about the fact that maybe life isn't working out the way they had imagined it would. See, the meek people are delighting in the Lord, come what may. 
The meek people are delighting themselves in the one true and living God. He is their consolation. He is their comfort in every situation, in every trial, in every trouble, in every disappointment. Verse 5, the meek to commit their way to the Lord. The word here is to, to roll everything onto the Lord. To roll their problems. To roll their temptation to get angry at what's going on. To roll it on to the Lord. Stuart Briscoe, a a pastor uh, in the States, writes this about verse 5. The meek roll their lives, their cares, their reputations onto the Lord and let the Lord worry about it all. The meek are those who, when offended, commit their wounded egos and the one offending their ego to the perfect judge. Does that have any of your names on it? Sure does mine. The meek can say to herself, what she did to me was wrong, but she is answerable to God. So I'll let God deal with her, but I am answerable to God too. So I'm going to concentrate on doing right by her. Let's roll our troubles onto the Lord. What great counsel. Maybe we don't have to to vent our spleen on Facebook. Then verses 7 to 9 we read, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself. There it is again. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. Amen. For the evildoer shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. See, here, meek people are encouraged to wait, to wait patiently for the Lord. Again, let me reiterate, this is not being passive. We've got to remember that David is the author of this song. If you know anything about the life of David, he just didn't sit, you know, in his palace uh, eating grapes and, and, you know, listening to the harp. I guess he played the harp, so that's not what he did. David's life and David's kingdom were threatened over and over again from King Saul, uh, from members of his own family. He had to flee for his own life. At several times in David's life, he must have wondered, Lord, what is going on here? So what did he do? Well, he didn't repay evil. He trusted the Lord. See, Jesus, or David, sorry, left it all in the hands of the Lord whenever he faced insurmountable odds. Questions with no answers in sight. See, David waited for the Lord to deliver his covenant promises. The Lord had promised so much to David. It just seemed as though he was taking a strange route to fulfill those promises. Have you ever felt that way in your life? I don't know about you. I feel that way all the time. I seem to know. Well, obviously, if if the Lord has promised me that, He is going to help me get there in the most efficient way possible. Never. That's never happened. The Lord 
you know, takes this route to get there, that I, I, I just, it drives you almost crazy. And yet, you can't deny that somehow all of that is helping prepare you to receive what he's promised. That's the story of my life. And if you've walked for any time with Jesus, that's the story of your life too. I don't know about you, but I, I, in pastoral ministry, the most common form of unbelief that I bump into, it's called impatience. That's the most common form of unbelief in my life. And I, I suggest it's probably the most common form of unbelief in your life. Impatience. Come on, Lord, get on with it. Just wait upon Him. Trust Him. He will deliver His promises to you in His way, at His time. Guaranteed. Trust Him. I was preaching myself there. Here's, here's one of the ways I think this applies to me. Look, we live in a world, I don't know if you noticed, it, it's just, it's hysterical. And I don't mean funny. I mean, it's just like, it's going crazy. And it would seem that with every 24-hour news cycle, there is some new crisis that we have to immediately get on. Or else. Boy, oh boy, it's exhausting. I'm not saying we should be passive. Let's let's keep our heads. Let's calm down. The Lord has made certain promises about things. <laughs> it's it's look, I, I'm fifty-five years old this year. I've been around long enough to hear that within five years this is going to happen and, and we're all gonna run out of food, we're all gonna run out of resources, there's gonna be another ice age, we're all about to die. Ah! And that happened, I can remember that back in the 70s. I'm going to go out on a limb here. I don't think the hysterical predictions are going to come. Just really sticking myself out there. In 10 years, 20 years, whatever, you know, they're saying, anyway, sorry, this isn't a message about that. Trust his promises. Wait upon him. He will fulfill what he has told us he will do for us. Patience, people. Sorry if I offended anybody. Verses 10 and 11. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land. And delight themselves in abundant peace. See, here again, David is inviting us to cultivate an eternal perspective. Brothers and sisters, this is the most important thing. Have an eternal perspective about your, your life and all the world's problems. Please. That's where the hysteria comes from. It's There's no eternal perspective to any of this. And I think David here in verse 11 was probably thinking about some future fulfillment of the kingdom as it related to the promised land, that real estate in the Middle East and Israel. 
But when Jesus quotes verse 11 in the Sermon on the Mount and is preaching about the kingdom, I think Jesus is directing our attention to a later and a greater promise. See, Jesus wants to focus our faith and our attention on the promise ultimately of a new creation at the end of the age. This is, this is what Isaiah looks forward to, the new heavens and the new earth. It's what what we read about in the book of Revelation. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about a whole new created order. And those who are meek in this age, that is their everlasting inheritance. Now, I, I, I understand the way this may sound. But this, this is not theoretical. This is not abstraction. And this truth that I'm, I'm just trying to preach in to and lean on a little bit with you hit me hard. Changed my life back in 2001. Some of you have maybe heard me tell this story. Many of you haven't. Back in 2001, my mother died. And a number of months after her death, my brother called me and told me that he had bankrupted her estate. He had invested all her money. He had power of attorney. He had invested it all and then lost it all in a bad investment. Personal loss to me was just under a million dollars. A little bit upsetting to get that phone call. And so I got that phone call. I remember exactly where I was standing. It was down on West Hastings. I was about a block away from my father-in-law's office. And I just felt like, like the world began to spin a little bit. What did, hello? <laughs> what just happened? And so I had the sense, I think this was God's grace working in my heart, despite my confusion. I had the sense to go and see my father-in-law. And I went up uh, to his office, and I asked his secretary if he had a minute, and he, he let me come in, and I sat down, and, and I told him the bad news. My father-in-law is a wonderful man. <laughs> he didn't say much, but he reached across his desk and got his old worn Bible, and he opened it to First Peter chapter 1. And here's what he read to me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that, or in order that, the tested genuineness of your faith which is more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
My father-in-law read that in his thick Dutch accent. And he closed his Bible. And I don't think he had a clue what was going on in my heart. But as he slowly read those words to me, my anger, my fear, my frustration, it was, it was like... It was, like, it was like the lake in the Gospels that Jesus just said, peace, be still. And it all went calm. It all went calm. And, and instead in that moment, as I listened to those words, here's what I thought. I realized in that moment that whatever... I had just lost. It was not worth comparing to the inheritance that the Lord is holding in trust for me. This is not theoretical. I, I realized that whatever my brother had just told me, it, it doesn't compare. It is not worth comparing in any way, shape, or form. It, it can't compare to the inheritance that my Lord and Savior is right now holding in trust for me. It's got my name on it. And that all happened in the matter of a few minutes. I think in that moment... I, I thought of, uh, I remember later thinking of that, that quote from Jim Elliot. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. See, that's a kingdom perspective. That's an eternal perspective. That's a gospel perspective on your life. And through that moment, through that whole experience, I think what the Lord was doing was imparting to my heart a measure of meekness. Because I came away deeply strengthened in my faith. And instead of feeling like I was a victim who had every right to be upset and angry. Oops. Pardon me. Don't get angry, Fred. See, instead of feeling like I was a victim and, and that I was hard done by, here's what I realized. First Peter 1 the Lord was refining my faith, which is more precious than gold that is tested by fire. My faith that day in that moment in that whole ordeal and many days afterwards has been refined. I am certain of my inheritance. And maybe if I hadn't had that experience, I would have trouble believing it. In that day, I learned to begin to know and experience what it meant to really submit my life to Jesus. To really submit my life to His Lordship. And that essentially is what meekness is all about. Meekness is about learning to submit to King Jesus. To take His yoke upon us. That's what He says in Matthew eleven twenty nine. He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, I am meek. It's the same word. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 
That's why some of the ancient sources use this word for meek. They use it to describe domesticated animals. They're submitting to the yoke. That's what we're called to do. Submit to the yoke of Jesus. It seems horrible. It seems painful. It seems like a loss, but it's not. It's gain. It's life. It's the assurance that He has secured for us an imperishable and undefiled inheritance. There's all sorts of examples of this. Let me give you two. Let me just say this. Sometimes meekness is described this way as strength under control. It's another way of looking at it. And I think we have a great example of this in Moses. There are only two people in the Bible described as meek, Moses and Jesus. So let's take a moment to look at each of them. In Moses, Moses explicitly in Numbers 12 is described as very meek. And it's interesting that in that chapter, we've got the example of his meekness illustrated and displayed for us. Here's what happens very quickly. Moses, uh, his, his sister Miriam and his brother Aaron come to Moses. They're not happy. They're full of criticism. They don't like his, his wife. They've got complaints there. And they certainly don't like the fact that he is the one who is leading Israel. In fact, they challenge him publicly and they say to him, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken also through us? They say this publicly. They're undermining and criticizing Moses' leadership before the people of Israel. Have you ever been challenged like that publicly? That's fun. Not fun. Very painful. And so what did, what did Moses do? Did he attack? Did he lash out? Did he berate them for their insolence? In an in a honor culture, this is deeply shameful. No, that's not what he did. He rolled it onto the Lord. He trusted the Lord. He knew that the Lord heard and saw what was going on. And he knew that the Lord would deal with it. A perfect example of strength under control. True meekness in action. Moses. He's not a gutless wimp. Anything but. He's one of the the towering oaks of the Bible. So, the best example there is, Jesus. Jesus and his meekness. It's it's mind-boggling. Think just in his trial. He is unjustly arrested, he is unjustly accused, and he is unjustly punished. Jesus is spat upon by Roman soldiers. He is blindfolded, mocked, and then beaten. He is ridiculed and insulted by the crowds as well as the criminals with whom he is being crucified. A crown of thorns is pushed down hard upon his skull. He is scourged. And what does Jesus do? Through it all, Jesus refuses to respond in kind. The Apostle Peter, he witnessed it all. He saw it all. And later on, this is what he wrote in 1 Peter 2.23. 
of Jesus. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He rolled it on to the Lord. He rolled it on to his Father. Do we, are we about, are we actively, continually trusting our situation, our circumstances, our whole selves, our whole lives to the one who will justly judge? That's true meekness. What courage, what strength. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is not spinelessness. Meekness is strength under control. So why should we embrace it? Remember what I said earlier on, how the kingdom of God subverts the status quo of this world. See, when when we find that we are becoming and embracing and beginning to live out this kind of meekness, here's what it is, folks. It's a sign that we're citizens of this kingdom. It's a sign that, that... Jesus is at work in our lives through the gospel, subverting our old ways, getting rid of them. And he's working new ways of living into us. I would never have opted in a million years to experience that meekness through that phone call and that interaction with my father-in-law. But now on the other side, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Not even a million dollars. It was too valuable a lesson. Meekness, when you find it emerging in your life, and let, make, no, make no mistake, this is not about your temperament. This is not about your person. Oh, he's a very meek person. He has a meek and tender personality. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Meekness, the kind of meekness that Jesus is talking about, is a work of the kingdom breaking into your life. It's a work of the Holy Spirit transforming. There is nothing meek about me except for what Jesus has worked into me. I am not a meek person. I tend to, I've had, well, we could talk about it. (laughs) Anger. Woo! By the grace of God, I'm not what I once was. Right, honey? See, when we find that, that this kind of meekness is working its way into our lives by the grace of God, that's an evidence that we're part of a new order. We're part of his kingdom. We're not part of this old kingdom that's passing away, John says. The kingdom is coming. It's coming in us. It's coming in the church. It will come one day in all of its glory and fullness. Bank on it. Let me close by directing your attention. This is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Revelation chapter 5. Verses 9 to 12. This is a scene in in heaven. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. The voice of many angels numbering myriads and of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice. 
Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the Lamb. There is no picture of meekness better than a lamb. Worthy, that's our Savior. That's our Lord. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. He was slain for you. He was slain for me. He was punished for our sins. He died in our place. He rose again and defeated death through His resurrection. And now He is worthy. Worthy is the Lamb to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. This is the way we get ahead. We inherit all things with the true meek one. Because all things right now belong to him and we are his and he is ours. Roll your troubles onto him. Trust him. Wait patiently for him. He will do it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know that the cross comes before the crown. And meekness comes before majesty. Your Son has shown us that perfectly. Help us to follow in His way and take up His yoke and become like Him, the Lamb, the true meek one, who was crucified for our sin, but who rose victorious to conquer sin and death and now has secured for us a glorious inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and is kept right now in trust for all those who believe. Lord, would you work these truths into our hearts so that we're, we're just not pushy and grabby and stepping on others and jostling, but rather we are truly meek. We are strength under control by your grace. Would you work that into our lives, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.